Well, good morning. Let's come on in and get settled. We'll begin. It's the five-second countdown right now. Welcome again to our class on defining and exploring the the message of the gospel. You know, I think I can say without qualification that there is nothing more important that we could be learning about this morning than this. This is what the entire Bible is about. This is what church ministry is about. And, And this is what the Christian life is all about. So I hope you realize that this class isn't simply for evangelism, although we should we should listen with evangelism in mind, but it, it isn't just unbelievers who need an accurate understanding of the good news of Christianity. You and I need this every day. Dane Ortland writes, the gospel that Christ died for our sins is the daily meat and drink for growing Christians. It is not a ticket in to be torn up. It is the air breathed to be increasingly enjoyed. And, and that's what we hope that you see in this class, that, that we, we need to keep the gospel in view and that we need clarity and understanding of this all-important message Let's go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1. You know, people talk about dating themselves with certain comments that they make, but here I'll reveal my, my youth and say that I've never actually driven with a physical road map. Whenever I've needed to drive somewhere where I didn't know where I was going, there's always been Google Maps so, but whether you, you have one of those maps that fold out like an accordion, you have no idea how to put it back together, or whether you have a printout from Google, it's always best to have a road map when you go on, on road trips. And uh, Greg Gilbert, he's the author of that, that book we're, we're studying along with this, has given us a, a road map of sorts for thinking about and sharing the gospel. And, and Pastor Peter mentioned it last week, that it's God, man, Christ response. God, man, Christ, and response. Those are the four essential elements for defining the gospel. We don't want any of them to be left out if our understanding of the gospel is to be accurate and biblical. And and this morning, we're going to focus on the first one, God. So this morning, we're going to learn about God. (laughs) We'll be discussing things that are, are basic to Christianity, but that are deserving of our attention. So let's read together. Romans 1, we'll read verse 16 through 25. says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. 
as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Well, let's pray before we begin. Father, we are turning our attention to deep things this morning. And I am weak. And words are inadequate. But we have a Bible. We have truth. We have revelation from you. So God, open it before us this morning. Lord, open the eyes of our heart. Lord, we need a bigger vision for who you are. Help us to see you, we pray. Lord, meet with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Greg Gilbert begins his chapter humorously like this. He says, let me introduce you to God. Note the lowercase g. You might want to lower your voice a little before we go in. He might be sleeping now. He's old, you know, and and doesn't much understand or like this newfangled modern world. His golden days, the ones that he talks about when you really get him going, were a long time ago, before most of us were ever born. That was back when people cared what he thought about things and considered him pretty important in their lives. Of course, all that's changed now, though, and God, poor fellow, just never adjusted very well. Life's moved on and passed him by. Now he spends most of his time just hanging in the garden out back. I go there sometimes to see him, and there we tarry, walking and talking softly and tenderly among the roses. Anyway, a lot of people still like him, it seems, or at least he manages to keep his poll numbers pretty high. And you'd be surprised how many people even drop by to visit and ask for things every once in a while. But of course, that's all right with him. He's here to help. Thank goodness all the crankiness you read about sometimes in his old books, you know, having the earth swallow people up, raining fire down on cities, that sort of thing. 
all that seems to have faded in his old age. Now he's just a good-natured, low-maintenance friend who's really easy to talk to, especially since he almost never talks back. And when he does, it's usually to tell me through some slightly weird sign that what I want to do regardless is all right by him. That really is the best kind of friend, isn't it? You know the best thing about him, though? He doesn't judge me, ever, for anything. Oh, sure, I I know that deep down he wishes I'd be better, more loving, less selfish and all that, but he's realistic. He knows I'm human and nobody's perfect, and I'm totally sure he's fine with that. Besides, forgiving people is his job. It's what he does. After all, he's love, right? And, And I like to think of love as never judging, only forgiving. That's the God I know. And I wouldn't have him any other way. All right, hold on a second. Okay, we we can go in now. And and don't worry, we don't have to stay long, really. He's grateful for any time he can get. (laughs) Well, that is obviously intentionally ridiculous, but it's not far from the truth when it comes to our, our culture's perception about God. That's why our understanding of the gospel must begin here. And this morning, we're going to focus on on the two things that Greg Gilbert mentions in his chapter and that come to the forefront of this passage in Romans. And they are that God is the creator and God is righteous. So first, God is the creator. The opening words of the Bible are, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is the the context in which the entire storyline of the Bible is set. And like a a good introduction to a lively novel, we are informed about several things that are necessary in order for that story to make sense. This world, everything seen and unseen, has an absolute reference point. Unlike the cyclical universes of Hinduism and Eastern religions where it just goes and happens again and again, uh, one after another, there is a beginning to it all. And this beginning finds its origin in the one who has no beginning. In the beginning, God. There was just God. He is absolute. One God whom we later find out has eternally existed in three persons. So this one God wasn't lonely when he created. He didn't make everything because he wanted somebody to talk to. No, he was eternally happy in the fellowship of God's own triune being. And this God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, which is shorthand for everything. Everything has its its existence because of him. Out of the overflow of his own pleasure, he created. And he made everything out of nothing, all by his spoken word. He speaks things into existence. He merely says the word and there are 
planets and molecules and oceans and cell plasma and whales and centipedes and koala bears and fungus spores and human beings like you and me. Everything, as Psalm 8 says, testifying to the glory of their creator. They form a collective witness with a uniform message that God exists and that he is worthy of our praise. And that's what Paul is saying here in verse 20. He says, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And of course, when we were four years old, we learned to ask the question, if if God made everything, then who made God? And the answer, of course, is that no one made God. He just is. He is eternal, the single absolute. As D.A. Carson says, he's not an object whom we Evaluate. He is the creator and he simply is. And there are a couple of implications of this doctrine of creation, both of which are very important for the gospel. The first is that we are owned by another. God owns us. God is the creator and we are The creatures, there is a fundamental, irreducible distinction there. It's the creator-creature distinction. There was a seminary professor uh, by the name of Cornelius Van Til who who taught in the mid-20th century, and every morning he would come into class and he would draw on the chalkboard two circles. He'd draw a big circle and and then a small circle under it, and the big circle represented God, and the small circle was his creation. And, and he said, you want to know the difference between the Christian worldview and every other worldview? It's that in the Christian religion, there are two circles. In everything else, there's only one. You know, in atheism, there's just the creation. Of course, it's not, it's not called creation, it's just matter and and motion, all without any reference to a a good and wise God. But even in those religions, at least the ones that don't borrow from Christianity in some way, but that still affirm a higher power, somehow they, they manage to confuse the circles there. Somehow God and his creation become equated in some way so that they aren't distinguishable. And in the, in the modern, just kind of cultural worldview of today, functionally, we are God. We are the master of our own lives. And if a God exists, he's certainly not going to tell me what to do. And so again, in that, there's just one small circle. But in the Christian view, God is our creator and we are his creatures. And the fact that we are God's creatures informs us that we belong to him, are dependent upon him, and are accountable to him. Greg Gilbert says, 
This quote's in your outline. Paul tells his readers that it is God to whom they are accountable. With his very first words, Paul insists that humanity is not autonomous, that we're not self-reliant, independent. We did not create ourselves, and we are neither self-reliant nor self-accountable. No, it is God who created the world and everything in it, including us. Because he created us, God has the right to demand that we worship him. It is our obligation as people created and owned by God to give him the honor and glory that is due him, to live and speak and act and think in a way that recognizes and acknowledges his authority over us. We are made by him, owned by him, dependent on him, and therefore accountable to him. We owe him everything. When, when Jesus made his famous statement, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, he wasn't just saying pay your taxes to the state and your tithe to the church. What, what are the things that are God's? Everything is his. We owe him everything. He is the one who has made us. He's the one who sustains us. As Paul says in Acts 17, he gives to every man life and breath and everything else in him. We live and move and have our being. And by our very existence, we are indebted to him with our lives. And this truth that we are accountable to God and answer to him is the death blow to religious pluralism, to the idea that that we can be the ones who determine how we are to approach God. And, And that's the way most people think today, you know. Most people don't have any trouble with God's existence as long as I can be the one to say what I think about Him and how I'm to come to Him. You know, as long as God is is okay, he thinks that every religious expression is equally valid. You know, a religion that says that there's only one way and that Christ is that one way is very distasteful. But that reverses the creator-creature relationship and robs from God his own right to determine how he, how he is to be worshipped. You see why the gospel must start here. God doesn't just tell us that he exists. He tells us how we are to relate to him, to say that it doesn't matter what religious label you use as long as you're genuine and love God, assumes that God is indifferent about this, but God is not indifferent to anything. And He is in charge. God is the Creator, and we are the creatures. The gospel begins by telling us that we we belong to Him. The second implication of the doctrine of creation is that there is meaning and purpose to our lives. You know, consider the alternative. Perhaps God's existence and, and his work of creation, that's something you've never questioned. Or maybe in, in the past you've, you've wondered about this, or maybe now some even have doubts. But 
But consider the alternative to this, to a God who has designed and made everything that exists. If there's no God, no creator, if our existence is merely accidental, we're just a collection of molecules and chemicals that have happened to be arranged in a certain way, then our lives are ultimately meaningless. There is nothing intrinsically good about living versus non-living. Ultimately, the universe does not care about us. We are a blip on the radar of a vast and expanding space and the suffering that we experience, which can't be called evil, but it's just, it's just the way things are, is ultimately without hope and without purpose. But If God exists, and if He is the one that has made us, that changes everything. In fact, the Bible tells us God's express purpose in creating us. As Pastor Peter likes to say, Genesis 1.26 is the purpose statement for our existence. We've been made in the image of God. God has designed us with that in mind. And we'll look, next week we'll look at, at God's designed for man in more detail. But for now, we note that God's existence gives meaning to our existence. Greg Gilbert calls this the good news behind the bad news behind the good news. The fact that God has made us means that there is is purpose to our lives. So God is the creator. And second, God is is righteous. Paul writes, verse 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. God's righteousness is is one of the most prominent themes of all scripture. Psalm 11, 7 says, The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. Psalm 35, 5, He loves righteousness and justice. But what does it mean for God to be righteous? Simply put, He is right. God is always right. Now, some of us may think that we are always right, or at least we'd like to be. Um, Author Gary Ricucci tells of a time when he and his wife were, were driving and came up upon an intersection and by that light, there had always been a sign that said, don't, don't turn right on red. And, but Gary was driving, and he, he noticed that sign had been removed. So he, he came up to the light, and he paused for traffic, and then he, he turned. And as he was turning, Betsy, his wife, said, Gary, you can't turn here on red. And he got upset about that. And, and so he actually went around the whole block and came up to the light again, and pointed and said triumphantly, look, no sign. <laughs> and obviously, Gary's desire to be proven right there was sinful, and it was, it was hurtful to his wife. But God really is always right. It is right for God to be right. 
For God to be righteous means that he desires the right things and does the right things. Now, perhaps that, that doesn't explain much. What is it about the will and actions of God that are right? Well, what God does that is right is to value and uphold his own glory. That is the definition of righteousness. Look what, what John Piper says. He says, God's righteousness is most basically his commitment to act unswervingly for his own name's sake and thus display his glory. It is God's inclination always to act so that everything abounds to his glory. That's the meaning of righteousness. It is God's inviolable allegiance that in everything he would be exalted and his honor would be upheld. God loves his own supremacy. When we say that God is pure and holy, what we mean is that there is no inclination within God to devalue God. When we say that he is without sin, we we mean that never for a moment does he give priority to anything above his own pleasure. Anselm says, God maintains nothing with more justice than his own dignity. The, The first and greatest commandment, according to Jesus, is to love the Lord our God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. He is worthy of the devotion of every fiber in our being. And he expects that from us. God's righteousness means that in everything, God desires to be first. Again, for us, this would be sinful. Our unswerving commitment to our own exaltation is the very essence of our sin and of our fallen condition. We want people to think highly of us. We want to be appreciated. We want to be seen as significant. We want people to feel like they need us. If we're not there, oh, I just wish so-and-so were here. Oh, that would make this situation so much more fun if, if he were here with us. Oh, I could really use this person's help. We want to be that person. We want to be at the center, and that is sin. But this brings us back to the creator-creature distinction. While our desire to be seen as great is a result of our pride, God truly is great. He truly is the best. In fact, for God to entertain the possibility that he is anything less than the center of existence would be for God to commit idolatry. He would be lying, which is against his nature. You know, while, while God is self-exalting, he is not selfish 
in the way that we normally understand selfishness because God is a sharing God. You know, since God is triune, God has eternally existed in a relationship of giving. The Father loves and glorifies the Son. The Son and the Spirit love and glorify the Father. The members of the Trinity delight in one another. In in a real sense, God is an others-centered God. His self-exaltation is self-giving, and in His goodness, He shares that with us as well. We were made to enjoy God and find satisfaction in Him. Since God's glory is our good, there is nothing better for us than for God to be exalted. And and as believers, doesn't that resonate with our hearts? Isn't it when we taste and see that God is good that we have the most joy? Isn't it when, when God is first that we feel like everything in our lives are right, that it couldn't be better, nothing is wrong because He is first? It's because we've been created to enjoy Him. It is good for God to be great. In a word, God is righteous. We can see this definition of righteousness clearly in how Scripture describes unrighteousness. If the essence of righteousness is God-exaltation, then we would expect unrighteousness to to be described as God-belittling. And and that's what we see here in in these passages that we looked at, Romans 1. Look at verse 21 again. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here sin is described as as not honoring God or giving thanks to Him. It is a failure to ascribe to God the worth that He is due. Ultimately, it is a great exchange. The glory of God is exchanged for the glory of created things. This is a value judgment. God's glory is viewed as less valuable than created things like images or money or respect or self-expression or anything else. Sin, unrighteousness is the evil exchange of the glory of God. In fact, God himself for other pursuits. It's what Paul means later in in chapter 3. Of Romans verse 23 when he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
they lack the glory of God. They do not value the glory of God. They exchange for the glory of God. It's what sin is. That is unrighteousness, and that's why it's so serious. There's this quote from John Piper in your notes that isn't the easiest quote to follow, but it is packed with truth. So let's read this together. Not to glorify Him as God and thank Him is the primal sin, the esteeming of the creature above the Creator, and the consequent belittling of the Creator's glory. Thus, according to Romans 1, 24 and following, all sins are an expression of dishonor to God, stemming as they do from the evil inclinations of man's heart to value anything above the glory of God. For God to condone or ignore the dishonor heaped upon him by the sins of men would be tantamount to giving credence to the value judgments men have made in esteeming God more lowly than his creation. Listen to this. It is not so much that he would be saying sins do not matter or justice does not, does not matter. More basically, he would be saying that he does not matter. That's what God would be saying if he overlooked sin. But for God thus to deny the infinite value of his glory, to act persistently as if the disgrace of his holy name were a matter of indifference to him, this is the heart of unrighteousness. Thus, if God is to be righteous, he must repair the dishonor done to his name by the sins of those whom he blesses. He must magnify the divine glory man thought to deny him. And you can see why God's wrath is the appropriate response to sin. That's why Paul begins in verse 18 saying, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That, that's what happens when righteousness meets unrighteousness. The Westminster Shorter Catechism gets it right when it says that every sin deserves God's anger and curse both in this life and in the life to come. Now, those of us who know and cherish the gospel are probably right now putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And, and that is a good move. But, but let's not move there too quickly. Paul hasn't gotten there yet. First, he wants us to truly appreciate the problem. And, and next week, uh, Pastor Peter is going to talk about man, about us and our condition, our, our plight before God. And, and we'll look at what God's solution is to that. So that's not specifically what we're looking at this morning either. That's coming. And, and with it, the good news is coming. And, and I hope even now, the cross 
is becoming more and more necessary and precious to you. But, but what we need to take away from this morning is the worth and dignity of God. Too often, even as believers, the best word that could describe our approach to God is insignificant. Now, I appreciate the way that uh, Gilbert kind of presented it in the opening of his chapter, saying, don't worry, we don't have to stay long. He, he Really, he, he's appreciative of the little time that he gets. And it is frightening to me how frequently that describes my own posture to him. Do we give him the time of day? We need a bigger vision for the significance of God. We need, as Jonathan Edwards would say, a God-entranced vision of all things. Now the question is, what does that look like for a believer? How should this function for, for you and me? And I think we get a hint of that in our, in our passage. If you look again at verse 25, it says, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. You catch that? See, Paul is describing the condition of men, and, and, and then he, he just breaks into what theologians call a doxology. He has this quick but purposeful statement of praise here. It's like he can't help but hold it in. He has this affectionate response for who God is. You see, what we're talking about this morning is not just the stuff of heady theology. It's meant to animate worship. It's what a heartfelt response to God looks like. That is the effect of a big vision of God. It is worship. You find that your desire for God has grown stale. You find that it is particularly difficult to live a holy life. Is sin having an increasing grip on your heart? Are the, the claims and values of the world looking more and more appealing? You, do you come to church? Do you come here disoriented? Kind of just waiting for things to, to be over, just wishing you were somewhere else. But when we sing together, are your lips forming the words as your mind or as your mind's trailing off to other things? And you have trouble concentrating, having trouble having your attention kept on the Lord. We need a bigger vision of our righteous creator, the one who is Blessed forever. And how does that happen? How do we see God most clearly? 
And the answer is in the face of Jesus Christ revealed in the gospel. The exact language that Paul uses here to describe God is what he later says of, of Christ in chapter 9, verse, verse uh, 5. He says, theirs is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You catch that. It's the same doxology. It's the same words, the same praise. You want to see the blessed one. You see him in Christ. To cherish the glory and significance of God is to cling to Christ in whom, in whose face God is most clearly revealed. You see, God is not something generic to us. God is made known to us in Jesus Christ. What God is to us, He is in Christ. Apostle John, the beginning of his gospel, verse 18, he says, No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. You want to see God? It is God, the one and only, the Son, who is at the Father's side. He is the one who reveals Him. Crystal clear, we see God in Christ. So, Let's be a people who love God by cherishing His Son. That's what it means to be gospel-centered. To know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we have, been, we have been looking at such thick things this morning. Lord, I pray that what has been said has been clear and that it will remain. But Lord, our hope is in the fact that we have a Savior who reveals you to us most clearly. So God, Lord, May it be that our hearts are even now staring with the eyes of faith into Christ and enjoying Him and thanking Him and worshiping Him. Lord, may that be what happens this morning. Lord, as we join with Your people, as we sing song together, Lord, may we have a big vision for who You are, one that affects us, one that changes us. Father, I pray that, Lord, if, if there is anyone here who does not know you, who is perhaps even now being introduced to the God of the Bible, Father, open their eyes. Lord, convert them, change them. Lord, grip them with your gospel. And Lord, may there be fruit 
that comes from this study as in the weeks to come as we approach it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.